Okay. The future millennial kingdom of God. When I last spoke, I began examining some of the many, many Old Testament scriptures, Old Testament prophecies concerning the millennium. I showed you that the kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom because the millennial kingdom is merely the front porch of eternity. After, after the 1,000 year millennium, we enter the eternal state and the eternal state is eternal. It goes on forever. I showed you that the millennial kingdom is an earthly kingdom, both in the sense that it's here on earth and also in the sense that it involves a population of mortal, physical, flesh and blood people. I also showed you that the millennial kingdom will be a time of the direct rule of Jesus Christ on earth. It will be a time when Israel is preeminent among the nations. It will be a time when David and the apostles will have a special role in this kingdom. It will be a time when God will fulfill his land promises to Israel. And I also showed you that it will be an un unprecedented time of economic prosperity. Economic prosperity based upon agricultural abundance, based upon an abundance of water, water in the right amount, at the right time, in the right place. And now today I will continue examining those Old Testament prophecies about the Millennial Kingdom. It will not only be a time of unprecedented prosperity, but it will also be a time of unprecedented peace. We read this each year at Christmas when we think about the first coming of the Messiah, but it also applies to his second coming. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. That portion was not fulfilled at Christ's first coming, but it will be fulfilled at his second coming. Isaiah says of this time, he shall judge between the nations and shall de decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Those who try to beat their swords into plowshares now will end up plowing for those who don't. I, I think that, that Christian pacifists are, are for the most part uh, very well-intentioned people, but they're just misinformed. The time will come when this earth is engulfed in peace, but Jesus has not called us to be pacifists now. If, uh, if you want an explanation of that uh, scripture about uh, turning the other cheek, Eric has done a, a thorough job of explaining what that really means. So, so check that out. The prophet Micah also uses those, those same words. He says, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. He uses that same terminology. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore.
in the prophet Zechariah. I, meaning God, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Listen to this now. Isaiah says, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So even nations that have historically been hostile to one another will be united in harmony in the millennial kingdom. Bob? Well, uh, an or, kind of an ordinary thing, and then uh, a question. Do you have the clicker from upstairs for flipping the slides? I do. Okay. Are you using it? If you're yes. not, you, oh, you're using <laughs> I, it. I, I told John to tell them, whoever's okay, doing no PowerPoint, that they can just okay. use the buttons for practice. <laughs> All right. Now, the other yeah. issue is, have you... I wonder if people thought about the the lament over Jerusalem. In other mm. words, we know that this is all God's plan. Right. But we're also, I think, saying that there's a real lament. I'll just read it. Maybe you can comment on lament, it. Lament? You mean in, I'm talking about lament? In, in Luke, uh, Luke 19.41. Oh. Okay. Let me read it. And he approached and saw the city... He wept over it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from, from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And then at the end it says, You did not recognize the day of your visitation, which is really a cool thing. And so what the question is, since the millennial reign of peace was prophesied, mm -hmm. some amillennials are saying, well, it would have happened in the first advent, but they rejected Messiah, so now it's never going to happen. No. And, then, and there's a passage like this. But I would say, no, God always intended that there would be the church age right. and that, that hidden from your eyes is a divine passive. In other words, by God. Mm -hmm. The hardness was real. Yeah. The rejection was real. But the church age is going to bring all these saved people who will populate the millennium. Right. But some people say, well, it's never going to happen right. because they didn't know the things that yeah. made for peace. Yeah. So Israel ruined it. Yeah. Now it will never happen. Yeah. Well, well, could you comment on that? Well, we, I, I showed you that earlier about... Um, God made, made these promises and, and he's, to Israel of, of, their, of their land and their peace and so on. And then he said, you know, as long as um, the, the sun rises and sets and as long as there's a moon and stars up in the sky, his promises will not fail. So, so even though God is, even though Israel has, has rejected God, they still will eventually return and these promises will be fulfilled. So, so think, of, think of how remarkable this is. I mean, this will not be achieved through human effort. 
I mean, no, no treaty, no international agreement, no amount of, of wishful thinking is going to bring this about. This will require divine intervention. So it will be a time of peace. Not only will it be a time of peace between people, but the nature of the animals, the very nature of the animals will be changed. There, there's a... Well, this is a very, very descriptive, very colorful prophecy by Isaiah. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. There, there's a joke about uh, a zoo in, in Jerusalem, and supposedly uh, Henry Kissinger, remember Henry, Henry Kissinger, the famous Secretary of State? He's, he's the director of the zoo. And in the zoo, there's actually an enclosure with a lion and a lamb together. In, in the same enclosure. And one of the visitors to the zoo is just amazed by that, and, and she says to, to Henry Kissinger, well, that's incredible, how do you do that? And Henry Kissinger in his thick Eastern European accent says, well, it's very simple. We just put in a new lamb every day. That, that's what you would have to do if you want the lion and the lamb to be in the same enclosure today. Once again, this will require divine intervention. Isaiah repeats this scenario. He says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the servant's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. And of course, this image of the animals at peace with one another and with humans has been a favorite image of, of artists down through the centuries. And this, this is one of the, the paintings depicting this, this image of the animals at peace with one another and with the people. God says, I will make, and I will make a covenant for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground and I will make you lie down in safety I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods so when people go camping up in northern Minnesota they don't have to, don't have to worry about bears and if you do encounter a bear you can invite him to lunch and <laughs> Not only will it be a time of peace with people and with animals, but there will be some incredible topographical changes during the Millennial Kingdom. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. I think that this is both symbolic and literal. I think 
Israel will be the leading nation, but it will also be the city of Jerusalem will be lifted up. It will be elevated. There are other changes that are going to take place. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Those of you who have been to Jerusalem, you know that Jerusalem itself and the area around Jerusalem is very hilly. It's very... Uh, sometimes when you're when you're walking there, you, you is, there is there any flat ground around here? Is it, it seems all very hilly. But as a result of these topographical changes, that whole area will be flattened out. But the city of Jerusalem will be elevated above the surrounding territory. So there will be great topographical changes in the millennial kingdom. And then, of course, we are told in Zechariah that on that day, his feet, the feet of Jesus Christ, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half shall move southward. So once again, we see some very dramatic topographical changes in and around Jerusalem. This is uh, the prophet Ezekiel then. He's talking about the millennial temple. And he says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. I'll talk more about that later. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arba and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be many fish. There aren't many fish in the Dead Sea today. There aren't any. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Anagdame, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. It, its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, meaning the Mediterranean Sea. Nancy Amundsen said to me, you mean we won't be able to float in the Dead Sea anymore? <laughs> well... In the Millennial Kingdom, uh, Nancy will have her glorified body. So if she wants to float in the Dead Sea, she can float in the Dead Sea. In fact, if she wants to, she can even float above the Dead Sea. (laughs) So there will be peace with, with the nations, with the animals. There will be topographical changes. And there will also be an absence of sickness. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, 
and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I was just going to mention that, that Isaiah 35 passage that you just had up there. That's one of the evidences that Jesus gives to John the Baptist. Remember, he sends disciples saying, are you the one? Literally, are you the one who comes? And they're asking, are you the Messiah? And Jesus cites that this is occurring in his earthly ministry, mm-hmm. that the ears of the deaf are unstopped, the blind shall see, the lame are leaping like a deer. And so in Jesus' first advent, there's an inauguration mm-hmm. of this. But as you're pointing out, Dana, in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be the consummation yeah. where this will be fully realized for the people of God. This won't be just a few. It'll be the many. Yeah. So anyway, I so, just wanted so to point that out. The, the, all of the miracles that Christ per- performed in his first advent were, were just a foretaste of what eventually Amen. will come. Well said. Yeah, thank you. Yep. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. And the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. Keep in mind that the people who go into the millennial kingdom will be the people who have just come out of the horrors of the tribulation. So they will... <clears throat> They will be in need of binding up. But God says he will restore them. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Because they have called you you an outcast, it is Zion for whom no one cares. So we can see that there's a totally transformed attitude in the world towards, towards Israel. It is Zion for whom no one cares. That's what they said before. But they won't be saying that in the millennial kingdom. I'm sorry. I was just wondering, do you know if the, do we know from scripture that whether the unregenerate coming into the millennium will be healed just as well as to the regenerate. Uh, what was that again? The those coming into the millennium from the tribulation that aren't aren't saved are are they healed as well? I, I think probably yes. Uh, I, I'm sure that not all of the people that Jesus healed during his earthly ministry were converted believers, and they were unbelievers too that, that were healed. Because the purpose of his, of his miracles was, was to illustrate, to demonstrate that he was of God, that he was God's representative on earth, and of course that will be the case during the millennium too. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. So if we're only a hundred, he's just a youngster. We, we saw um, a scripture earlier that talks about how people will be like trees. Well, we know that trees live a long time, but it, it means that people will live a long time, just like the trees do. They will have incredibly long lifespans. It will also be a time of full knowledge. The teaching ministry of the Lord is 
is the in, and the indwelling of the Spirit will bring the, the um, subjects of the kingdom into a full knowledge of the Lord's ways. Another prophecy from Isaiah, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Many in the nations today don't want to hear God's word go forth, but in the millennial kingdom they will. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Even those who are, are not inclined at first to receive this knowledge eventually will. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall ha hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. But we've seen this before. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what Isaiah said. And Habakkuk used the same wording. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What will be some of the result? Eric? I have a question then. Those two things indicate to me that the entire, it's not just the Jewish people, not just Israel, but all peoples right. will understand the word of the Lord. Okay. Is that correct? Yeah. I think that's correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Then the nations will want to go up to Jerusalem to, to learn the truth. And those that don't will be forced to. <laughs> they, they, won't, they will have a drought. Uh, yes, I came in a little bit later and perhaps I've missed a lot, but from all the verses that you've read plus the verses you've come up with, could you distinguish between this and universalism? What was that again? Distinguish between all the verses that you've chosen today and the one you've got on the screen. So to distinguish what, if all the earth is going to know all this, okay, distinguish between that and the idea of universalism. Everybody will be saved then. No. Yeah, I agree with you, no, but uh, couldn't universalists use these various passages to uh, further their point? What, what point are you, are you referring to? Well, the one you just read, for one thing. Uh, many of them, uh, from the P 
piece uh, of nature of animals, topographical, all those things. I, I think I understand his question, so if I can just interject. Uh, universalism, you know, the, the idea that does this imply universalism, and I don't think it does. I, I think that in the millennial kingdom, there still will be people who re- will rebel, right. who will not want to be in the new covenant. Yeah. I think that's, is that correct? I, I think, yes, I I think mean, that's it, Paul's at, question. At the end of the millennium, the nations ri- some of the people will rise up and rebel against God. And God will quickly put down that rebellion. So, so what we see in the millennial kingdom is a, a situation, a, a condition upon the earth where, we, where people will be forced to obey, but some people aren't going to like it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's another difference, and that is throughout history, there have been people who never came to faith in God who've died. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be in the millennial kingdom. Is that correct? Correct. So there's the universal resurrection doesn't happen until the end of the millennium. Right. So universalism is false uh, no matter what, because there's already all kinds of people who die in rebellion against God. And I, I also want to ask about, well, I think there's an already not yet mm-hmm. to some of this, right. because the passage you cited in Jeremiah 31 is a new covenant passage that is applied already yeah. in the new covenant that we're under. So we're, we're not implying that right now you can't enter the new covenant. So already people are coming to Christ and their sins are forgiven and they know the Lord and they will come with Christ Right mm-hmm. when he when he returns at the end of the tribulation, so but the not yet has to do with this full millennial reign yeah. and also the saving of national Israel. That's correct. That's that's, okay. that's the main point. That, yeah. So we're that, not denying yeah, we're the already. Denying, yeah. Okay. Because uh, at the at the last supper, Jesus talked about how he was the the. Uh, um, this is the new covenant. The new covenant. Yes. Yeah, this yeah. is the new covenant yeah. in my blood, and yeah. it's certainly emphasized in the book of Hebrews as well. Yeah. So, one of the consequences of this full knowledge of the earth will be a pure language. People all over the earth will learn to speak a pure language. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure language that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So there will be a pure language, a language with no profanity, a language where the days of the week and the months of the year are not tied to pagan gods. Did you have a question? Well, I I was just... Uh, on the previous point, um, I was just going to clarify that going into the millennium, will, there'll be, I think there'll be three groups of people: the, the, those those that are saved and in their immortal bodies, and and then those that are saved in the tribulation or in the millennium that still have their mortal bodies, and then of course the unsaved to have their mortal bodies. <laughs> so there's three classes of people. 
Yeah. Oh, and the, and the, and the, and the mortal will continue to procreate, of course. Yes, exactly. The, the names of the days of the week and the names of the days of the month, as, as used today, are linked to paganism. But, it's, but the prophet Zechariah says, on that day, the, declares the Lord, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. So no longer are we going to have a language that's linked to paganism. Not only will it be a, a time when people learn a pure language, but it will also be a time of instant guidance. People today talk about doing the right thing, but there's no absolute standard of what the right thing is. That will not be the case in the millennium. We won't have people doing what is right in their own eyes, deciding for themselves what is right and wrong. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. It will also be a time when people have their prayers instantly answered. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And here's a consequence that will come upon the Jewish people. The repurposing of fast days. At the present time, for the Jewish people, fast days... uh, are very solemn, sober events. There's only one uh, fast day that's that's given in the Torah, that's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and that is said to be the most solemn time of the year for the Jewish people. The other fast days were added later on to commemorate unpleasant events in the Jewish calendar. For example, the, the fast of the fifth month, the ninth of Av, It was on that day when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And it was on that very same day of the year that the second temple was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Well, look what happens in the millennium. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh, that's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. So the fast days will still be remembered, but they won't be fast days anymore. There'll be times of joy. Now, Let's turn to the book of Ezekiel. The, the book of Ezekiel, this, this pas- passage from chapter 40 through 48, the last part of the book of Ezekiel, it's the longest continuous prophecy about the millennial kingdom. So you really can't talk about the millennial kingdom in depth without addressing the issues that are raised in these chapters of Ezekiel. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go verse by verse through all nine chapters. But I would like to point out some things to you that you might not catch from just reading the text. 
it's, it's helpful to, to look at diagrams or, or illustrations to show what's, what's going on here. So I'll try to do that for you. One of the things that's described in this passage is the promised land. I, I told you earlier how God's land promises to Israel are going to be fulfilled. Well, Ezekiel talks about the apportioning of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. I talked about this passage uh, earlier when I talked about the land promises to Israel. This, this is from Genesis, Genesis, and it's reiterated later in the Torah. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to, to your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, when you see that expression, river of Egypt, uh, you could very well be thinking, oh, that's the Nile, that's the river of Egypt, right? Well, scholars don't think so. There, there is a river, a, a stream bed in the northern Sinai Peninsula called the Wadi El Arish that historically was, was the border between Israel and Egypt. So you can see on here the, uh, the dotted yellow line, that's... Uh, or, the yellow line, that's the, the modern boundary between Israel and Egypt. And the, the Wadi El Arish is, um, is a little bit west of that. Uh, let's see, let me get my pointer on the screen here. Well, the, the Wadi El Arish is, is about 18 miles or so west of, of where the modern border between Israel and Egypt is. And there's, there's another map showing the, the, the Brook of Egypt, the, the Wadi El Arish. So that's, that's the western boundary, the western end of the, of the Promised Land. What about the other end, the, the Euphrates? Well, some prophecy teachers think that the individual tribal allotments will extend all the way to the east straight east to the, to the Euphrates River. I don't think that that will be the case, and, and here, here's why I don't think that. Remember Moses. Moses was not allowed to go into the Promised Land. He was only allowed to view the Promised Land from atop Mount Nebo. Well, Mount Nebo was on, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, in what is now the country of Jordan. But see, if it's true, this, this scenario that I just showed you, where the, the tribal allotments extend straight east all the way to the Euphrates, then Moses would have already been in the Promised Land. But the Bible tells us that he wasn't in the Promised Land, so I don't think that that, that scenario is, is the case. I think that the Promised Land in the, in the Millennial Kingdom will look more like this. And I think that the Promised Land will extend to the northeast, up through Syria, and, and will reach the, uh, 
reach the Euphrates River up at the northeast here, rather than going straight east to the, to the Euphrates. This is just a, a satellite map of the area showing, showing the, the tribal allotments, according to this wheel. So here's the promised land. There are seven tribes that have their allotments to the north of Jerusalem, and there are five more that have their allotments to the south of Jerusalem. But we want to look at that, at that area right where the city of Jerusalem and the temple are, because there's, there's something that's surprising, perhaps, in that. This is a, a closer-up view of that. You see that there's a, a priest portion, a Levite's portion, and then the, the city, meaning the city of Jerusalem. And to either side there, there's the prince's portion, and I'll talk more about this, this character called the prince later on. But there is something I want you to notice about this. Those of you who have been to Jerusalem, and even most of you who haven't been to Jerusalem, you know that the first and second temples were believed to be on what is called the Temple Mount. But if you look at this diagram from the information that we get in Ezekiel, you'll see that the sanctuary, the temple, is not in the, within the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's north of the city. So that, that might be maybe a surprising thing to you. But, but how can that be? How can, the, the, how can there be a, some distance between the city of Jerusalem and the, and the sanctuary? So really, you have two options. Either the city of Jerusalem will be located where it is today, and the temple will be located some distance north, or the temple will be on the Temple Mount and the city of Jerusalem will be some distance south. Um, I, I've gone back and forth about that and, and I won't be dogmatic. But, but here's, here's something to consider. If the temple is located to the north of Jerusalem, where would that put it? Well, when the children of Israel first came into the promised land, they didn't immediately go to Jerusalem and build the temple. That happened centuries later when, when David moved the Ark of the Covenant to, to Jerusalem. He, he had conquered the city. He moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And then his son Solomon built the first temple. So where was the tabernacle all that time before? Before the temple was built, they used the tabernacle. Where was it? This is a a diagram of, of the various temples down through history. And as you can see in this diagram, for 485 years, Israel was using the tabernacle. That's longer than the first temple was standing. It was standing for about 374 years. Now, now that 485 years includes the 40 years of wilderness wandering. But even, if, even at only 445 years, that's more than, than the temple existed. So where was, the, where was the tabernacle set up all that time? Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So that's where they set up the tabernacle. And it's possible that in the millennial kingdom, the temple will be set up at Shiloh. 
which is about 15 or 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, another interesting thing about this arrangement of the temple and Jerusalem, remember the, there's a river that flows out from under the temple and towards the east. You can see the, the river that flows from under the temple to the east. But at some point, it will have to turn south so it can get to Jerusalem. Because we are told in, in these prophecies that at Jerusalem, the waters will be divided and half of them will flow, flow towards the Hinder Sea, meaning the Mediterranean Sea, and half will flow towards the Dead Sea. So, the, so that river that comes out from under the temple has to go down to Jerusalem and then be divided there at Jerusalem. Now another thing I wanted to show you about this diagram, you see those, uh, those yellow symbols up at the top there? What that is showing is which temples were occupied by the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory. Now we see that the tabernacle was, and the first temple was, but the second temple, the temple that Jesus Christ came to, was not. It was not inhabited by the Shekinah glory. And of course the, the tribulation temple that will be occupied by the Antichrist, that definitely will not have the glory of the Lord. But, but, the millennial temple will. In the, uh, yes, sir. Sorry, I had I just had a question about your last comment on that diagram. If you could go back real quick, please. I'm not understanding how the second temple, how the second temple could not have the glory of God when Jesus was there. Can I talk about it? Because I was just studying that in regard to Ephesians 1, 22, 23, which I'll be preaching on July 22nd. Did all kinds of study because of this issue. In the Old Testament, the term filled is used um, in Ephesians for fullness, pleroma, and then a participle, and then there's a related term. And the issue is, how exactly does this relate to what's said in Ephesians about the body, about Christ's glory, Christ's headship, the body and the church being the temple of God and filling. So I've been studying that for weeks, actually months. And that doesn't mean I'm right, but I think I finally found some good uh, analogies. In the Gospels and in Acts, the temple is the place of rebellion, the second temple. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I already mentioned here in Luke, he... Uh, uh, after he approached the city and wept over it, if you knew this day, it would bring peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. Then he went into the temple complex, began to throw out those who were selling. Yeah. So there's judgment going yeah. on. He, he cast out the money changers and he yeah. told them that they'd made it a den yeah. of robbers. So the temple yeah. wasn't filled with the glory of the Lord. Yeah. Now, when you go to Ephesians 1, and this is what was... I, 
I, I hope by God's grace to preach this well in two weeks or a week from today. But um, the filling under the new covenant is applied to the church. And it doesn't mean the church replaces, but the church is how God's presence is on the earth now. And Christ, we're, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the glory that's spoke of in Ephesians 1 is uniquely Christ, but there's a way in which this fullness becomes a communicable attribute of God. And if you look in Acts, you see the temple being under judgment, but the Holy Spirit coming and filling people who become part of the church. Okay, so this doesn't mean all of this won't happen in the future. But for now, the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of whom fills all in all. Christ and his church. And, that's, and so that's all the more reason for the church to believe the promise of God for holiness. Because when we apostatize, we bring disrepute to Christ. And that's very, very bad. So I'll, I'll do my best when I preach on this, okay? Christy. I don't know if this is part of that as well, but John 1.14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his, his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right. But then keep reading verse 16. Okay. 16, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Right. So there is Christ... And then of his fullness we've all received. There's that same word, pleroma. So in a way, it's communicated. And when God's uh, attributes, are, some of which are communicable, some are not, there's an analogical relationship. Eric was talking about that. And we are never Christ. We're not little gods like the... New Apostolic Reformation says that we're a little, we're going to go around and be God. But we do receive, of his fullness we've all received. And so there's Pleroma being received by the church. And so Christ ascends to heaven and they told, and he told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. So this receiving of the Spirit and God's fullness happens during the church age through the church but that's not the end it's going to happen when Christ returns in an even greater way and fuller way in a vision the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart from the first temple good point then then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. So the glory of the Lord departed in stages. First it departed from the temple. Then it departed from the city. Then it lingered for a while over the Mount of Olives where Christ will return. And then it departed. But in a later vision, 
the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord return to the millennial temple. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the Lord of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of many waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The glory of the Lord entered the temple to the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, left the first temple. It wasn't in the second temple, the, the temple that, that the, the uh, religious leaders of, of Christ they had made into a den of robbers, but it will return to the millennial temple. So, so in this passage from Ezekiel, a major section of the book of Ezekiel, this, this is chapters 40 through 46 that are describing the temple and its, and its worship, is given over to a temple that the prophet described in detail. It's very hard to allegorize all of this because he gives measurements, he gives details, just a, a veritable blueprint. It's dimensions, priesthood, worship, sacrifices, and ritual. And, and Ezekiel is not the only one. Other prophets also wrote about a future literal millennial temple. Isaiah and Daniel and Joel and Haggai. They also described this millennial temple. If you look at these scriptures honestly and clearly, you will see that they can only refer to a temple that will exist in Jerusalem when God, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, physically dwells on earth in the midst of his people Israel. Some try to relate Ezekiel's vision to Solomon's temple, the first temple. Others say it refers to Zerubbabel's temple, built after the Jews returned from Babylon in the 5th and 6th centuries B.C. And of course that, was the, that second temple was the one that, that Herod the Great greatly uh, refurbished and enlarged the, the Temple Mount. However, the dimensions, priesthood, and ministry of Ezekiel's temple differ completely from the other two. Still others teach that Ezekiel depicted the ideal temple that Israel was supposed to construct but did not. No text in scripture comes close to validating this interpretation. Today it is becoming increasingly popular to spiritualize the biblical text and teach that the temple in Ezekiel symbolizes the spiritual blessing being fulfilled in the church. Again, nothing in scripture gives any credence to this idea. Nor is the temp this temple in Ezekiel the tribulation temple. A temple will exist during the future tribulation, but it will, not be, it, it will be an ungodly one that does not correspond to the godly temple in Ezekiel's prophecy. So it's not the first temple, it's not the second temple, it's not any, any temple that will be built uh, as the tribulation temple. So to what temple does Ezekiel refer? The interpretation that makes the most sense is that this is a future literal temple that will be built in the millennial kingdom. Such a temple is consistent with Ezekiel's earlier prophecy that God will set his sanctuary in Israel. When I was reading the, uh, the prophecies to you about the, the land promises that God will fulfill, uh, several times in there it mentions the sanctuary. A temple will be built after God has made a covenant of peace with Israel in the millennium. 
The temple's purpose will be sixfold. It will exhibit God's holiness, manifest God's glory, be the Messiah's dwelling place, be the location from which the Messiah will govern the earth from David's throne. This one may come as a surprise to some of you. Provide a place where people will offer sacrifices to God in worship. And house a river flowing from under the threshold to the Dead Sea. You've seen that before. Providing the life-giving water to the vegetation throughout the Negev, the, the southern part of Israel. This temple will be unlike any other in Israel's history. The outer dimensions of the temple complex will form a square 875 feet. Now, the, the dimensions, of course, are given in cubits, not feet, but scholars think that the cubit that Ezekiel is talking about is what is called the, the royal cubit of about 21 inches. So it will form a, this complex will form a square 875 feet across and in length. The temple does face east as the tabernacle and the temples of Solomon in the exile. The diagrams and illustrations and models of the temple are going to vary somewhat depending on how the particular artist interprets some of the details, but they're, but they're pretty much alike. But I'll show you several different diagrams, models, uh, so you can get an idea of what the temple is like. So the, the lower part there, that's the, that's the east. That's facing east. So there will be gates on the north and the east and the, and the south that will admit you into the outer temple. And then there are further gates on the north and east and south that go into the inner court. And you can see how the design of the temple is, is quite different from what it was in, in the first temple and, the, and in the second temple. See how, how tall the front part of the temple is. Here, here's some other diagrams. And I'll give, uh, give this PowerPoint to, to Christy so you can, those of you who are interested can, can look at it longer. I'll just kind of zoom through these right now. There's another shot of a, of a model of the temple complex. And I like this one because it's a, it's a color illustration. <laughs> uh, and, and it does show that, that river that comes out from under the temple going to the, to the east there. A lot of uh, diagrams and illustrations of the temple, for some reason, forget to include that, that river. That, that comes out from under the temple. So you know, this one, you, you see it's not here, but here, the, the, here you see the, the river coming out from under the temple and flowing to the east. What I think is so ironic about this picture is, you know where this comes from? The Lutheran study Bible. People who don't believe in, in a future millennial kingdom, they, 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 they see that it's there and in, it's in the text. I wanted to show you this one because it gives you a, a size comparison, something to compare it with. If you look down in the lower right corner, you see a square where the temp, which is the temple complex, and then below that there's a football field. So you can you get a size comparison there. It's,
You see that the, in, the, in the lower right-hand corner? The, at the very bottom, there's a football field to compare it with. I am just totally confused about okay. the sacrifices um, in the temple mm -hmm. because we're no longer under the old covenant that's been abolished, no more sacrifices. Mm -hmm. So I'm confused about... I haven't read Ezekiel for a while, but mm -hmm. do they sacrifice animals then yeah. in the new covenant? Yes. I'll, and I'll, next I, time I'll, I'll explain that all to you and make it so it's not so confusing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so most of the next time I think we'll, we'll spend on the temple sacrifices because that's something that people have a lot of questions about. Now, we'll just finish up with, with this here. So you have the temple and the temple complex, and then around that, there's an area that's about a mile long and a mile wide, a large flat area around that. And that is much too large to fit on the Temple Mount. I mean, the, the Temple Mount is only about 36 acres. So that, that's not going to fit on the Temple Mount. The Temple building itself will be 172 feet 9 inches long and 105 feet wide. So we're, once again, we're assuming the, the 21-inch cubit. It will be 170 feet 6 inches high on the east and 70 feet... 72 feet 6 inches elsewhere. So, so next time we'll, we'll finish up with the temple and we'll also get into that important issue of the sacrifices. Do you want me to close in prayer or do you want to do it? You, you can do it. Okay. Dear Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for Dana and his uh, very diligent efforts in studying and understanding what your word says so that he can teach us and we can learn. Thank you, Lord for the prayers of the saints and for touching uh, my mom and uh, bringing her from the deathbed to much better health and strength. Thank you for helping us take care of each other and pray that you'd bless us as we have a service upstairs. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dana.